hey, this is not necessarily the same game that you played five years ago. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 19, and today's guest is Joe Yakwell, founder and CEO of Within. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Joe Yakwell, the founder and CEO of Within, the world's first performance branding company. Within works with the brands to collapse the funnel between performance and brand marketing to unify objectives, targets, and strategy. Some of Within's partners include Nike, Anheuser-Busch, Facebook, Shake Shack, Spanx, and Yugo Boss. Joe, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, really appreciate the chance to be here. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can have others um, you know, learn and take away from what we chat about today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what we try to promise to the listeners is that there'll be, you know, three or four takeaways that they can either take back to their business or their personal life. And, and knowing your background a bit, uh, I'm sure they're uh, going to get a few of those. We're recording this early August uh, 2020. Uh, so we're still um, knee deep in the pandemic, though uh, New York uh, seems to have flattened out and, and seems to be improving a bit. But, you know, how has this all uh, impacted you personally and, and your company and, and your family? Yeah, absolutely. I would say on the personal side, I mean, um, you know, obviously this, uh, this, this whole situation creates a lot of change and volatility, um, which, which is often difficult. So I know uh, many have have suffered personal losses, and and it's a, it's been a tough time for for most, if not everyone. But I think for me, um, you know, one of one of the benefits to kind of see a little bit of light in this is that I've been able to spend a lot more time with my kids, which is nice. But on the um, you know business side, we're also working with with many retailers uh, and brands across um, financial services and travel and B two B. Uh, and events, and obviously the ones in travel and events more specifically, you know, have, have taken a pretty big hit in just helping everyone across those verticals navigate through these trying times um, has been a really big priority for us. You know, our business is really about being a trusted business partner um, for our clients, and that means helping them with whatever it is that they might need. Um, obviously, our sweet spot is, is media and content. Um, but oftentimes in situations like this, we're asked and, and, and really um, feel, I don't want to say obligated is the wrong word. I mean, you know, we, we want to help in a way that's beyond that. Um, so in the, in the time of COVID, we actually offered proactively to our clients to pause their minimum fees if they needed to, you know, reduce the, the level of service if they needed to, or even extend their payment terms uh, as necessary to just do whatever we can to support their business beyond just the work that we do for them day in and day out. So uh, it's been quite a ride, but I think um, thankfully, you know, we've been able to navigate the storm um, and our people are, are in really good shape and our clients are, in, are broadly speaking, in, in pretty good shape. Um, and, and we're all going to come out of it, uh, I think, better than we were before. 
uh, after the dust settles, just given kind of how much it's also forced us to, to strengthen our business and our, and, and our operations and our efficiency. All right, we'll come back to uh, what you're doing at Within and, and how you're helping uh, brands. But you know, I'd like to get started with uh, you know, kind of your first story, some background about you know, where you grew up, uh, what you did educationally uh, that perhaps helped uh, set the stage for what you do today. Yeah, so uh, my parents are both um, immigrants. They, they moved here uh, in their early 20s from Israel and they're entrepreneurs and started a business here. Uh, in the yellow cab um, industry in Manhattan, um, which obviously itself has gone through tons of, of change with Uber and, and, and the likes. But I, I learned a lot from them about um, just what it's like to be an entrepreneur and, and have always been you know, really fascinated and drawn to it. Um, so in terms of growing up, I grew up in, in Long Island, uh, New York, and I'm one of five. I'm the youngest. So between being the youngest uh, and having you know, entrepreneurial uh, immigrant parents um, with broken English um, and kind of growing up in that environment. I think I was always pushed by my parents to achieve more than they were able to because um, their way of looking at it was, hey, if we were able to achieve all this and we came here barely speaking English in our early 20s with no money uh, and you have an education, you know, and you, you understand the, the culture and you grew up here, um, you should be able to do a lot better than we did. <laughs> so uh, I, I always kind of had that in the back of my mind. Like, you know, I have something in a way kind of to prove where uh, my parents were able to achieve so much with so little um, that I want to be able to do as much or more and be able to give back along the way. So that's just a little bit about kind of how I grew up um, or where I grew up. And, and then um, went to uh, college in New Orleans because I really was looking for a different experience, something that was a very different feel than, than what I was used to in New York and Manhattan. Um, so I had a really awesome time at Tulane, um, really embraced myself in, in the culture in New Orleans and loved everything there, especially the food. Uh, and then from there, came back to New York uh, and did my master's at NYU while I was also working at Quidzy at the time <clears throat> and, and previously to that had a startup. Um, so I was getting my my master's uh, at night, and uh, it was really important to me to to complete that and give me something to do outside of um, my my work day to day, where I felt like my head was always deep in the sand. So um, that's a little bit about my background. Right, your master's is business analytics, correct? Yeah, there's a I had a few specialties there um, across marketing and business. That's right. Right. Gotcha. And, and so you, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, um, uh, Quidzy, but pre-Quidzy, you had started a few different companies. W what were they? That's right. So uh, I, my first business that I started um, was intended to be a equity research platform for the retail environment, uh, really taking advantage of high quality and, you know, kind of um, uh, investment grade research that the institutions were using and then bring that to the retail ecosystem um, by taking advantage of the time delay and the impact that that has to the, almost like the price of that research. Um, so another way of saying the institutions cared about that research, but only cared about it when it was really fresh. I, my thesis was the retail investors wouldn't necessarily put as much of an emphasis on the speed to, to the research coming in their hands. And therefore, the research firms would be comfortable selling it at a much lower price to retail investors as long as there was some kind of a short delay to when that research was available. Um, so that was the thesis. Uh, I spent way too much time building out the platform until I realized that retail investors didn't want to pay for 
even really high quality research, even at really low prices, because there's so much free information available online and they just don't want to pay. Um, so I ended up abandoning that idea, but it took me about a year to build it out and fail. Um, so I took that as a learning experience and then went into my next idea, which was selling contact lenses online. And this is when you could virtually sell anything online and still have some kind of you know, opportunity to, to grow much more than you do today, just because there was a lot less competition and dropship was still much more of a prevalent value prop. Um, but I started this, this uh, website selling contact lenses and, and within a month um, or even less, I was able to, from the idea to setting up the website, to running the marketing, to realizing that I couldn't fund the, the unit economics because the cost of acquisition was way too high because the LTV was high. My competitors were willing to outspend me hand over fist. So I shut that down and that was like, a, like I said, soup to nuts, 30 days or so. Uh, and then from there, went over to start uh, another business, um, which I called fireforless.com, which was a dropship business selling outdoor products and fireplace products. Uh, and that business, similarly, I wanted to set up and test very quickly. Um, so within about a week of having the idea, I, I found some dropship suppliers. I stood up the site and I was able to drive some revenue and, and actually do it profitably within the very first couple of days of running marketing. Um, so I was like, okay, there's something here and, and, and I'm barely even scratching the surface. Um, so that's kind of where I spent the next couple of years building up that business. Um, and I grew it to about 3 million run rate rev, maybe a little bit more um, within 12 to 18 months or so. And there was a lot of automation involved, um, just carrying through the logistics because a lot of the shipments were very heavy and required um, less than truckload or known as LTL um, shipment versus like a UPS or a FedEx. So there was a lot of nuance between that and customer service and, and managing the listings and the inventory and the pricing, um, which really had me hone in on automation um, and, and eventually uh, very deep on media arbitrage, um, which kind of brought me through the rest of my career, really focusing in on media and content. Um, so that was kind of the uh, where I got the forefront of it. But then from there, you wound up going to Quidzy? Correct. So from there, um, I went over to Quidzy and, and really I wanted to take advantage of everything I learned and apply it to a bigger business with a bigger budget. Um, so uh, Fire for Less was, oh yeah, that was like a, it was like summer 2010 through summer 2012. Um, and then from there, um, went over to Quidzy. At Quidzy, I was brought on to run performance marketing across their portfolio of brands. And the most Notable ones that you might know would be diapers.com, soap.com, or wag.com. Those were the three biggest ones, diapers, um, and then soap, and then wag in that order, kind of in terms of size. And then um, they had a few other sites that we we wound up um, while we were there, um, which was Yo-Yo, Beauty Bar, uh, Casa, Vine, Bookworm, and Look.com. And that was a really awesome experience where I was able to get my hands, like I said, on bigger businesses, bigger budgets, um, and also put the practice to work in a way that was consistent across brands. So there was kind of a nice portfolio application of best practices and operations beyond just, um, you know, implementing them themselves on any individual brand or website. Um, Cause the, those sites were all under an Uber nav and a lot of customers cross shopped. So there's a lot of LTV implication to people that you would acquire on one business and how they would translate to others. Um, so that kind of complexity made that really fun and interesting. How was it, you know, you, you had spent all this time, you know, post-school working for yourself, you know, your own businesses. What kind of transition was it for you to now work for a much larger company, bigger budgets, as you mentioned? Um, it sounds like it was still entrepreneurial under a big umbrella, but was it a, a transition for you? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I always knew that I wanted to do my own thing ever since I was a kid. Um, so going into business at Quidzy, for example, I always knew that it was a stepping stone. I didn't know exactly to what, but uh, I, I knew that I wouldn't necessarily be there um, for an incredibly long time as much as it was for me to learn what it was like to, to work in a corporate environment um, and learn things that I don't know, right? Learn what it's like to manage larger teams, learn how companies operate at scale. And I think a lot of what I learned is things that I, that I took with me and, and wanted to embrace in, in my own companies. But I think that there are also things that you learn that you want to avoid, right? And things that you don't want to bring with you and that really shape the way that you build culture when you leave a place and start something for, your, for yourself. Um, and I think that you know, learning both sides are equally important. I knew what I was getting myself into, so it wasn't like a jarring experience that disappointed me. Um, I actually really, really enjoyed my time there, and there was an amazing group of people that worked there, and I made awesome connections that I still have with me today. Um, and it's just an awesome alumni network to be a part of, in particular with Quidzy. All right, and at some point in time, you left there and and headed to another, you know, larger, you know, now a, a business that had physical retail as well uh, over at the Vitamin Shop. So, what was your role there? So at Vitamin Shop, I was brought on to run marketing across the, the e-commerce business and the retail business. Um, and really, it was all about driving customer acquisition and, and, and improving um, customer lifetime value. And when I was brought on to the Vitamin Shop, um, we had about 700 brick and mortar stores doing about 900 million in revenue offline, um, plus the e-commerce business doing about 100 million in revenue online. And... You know, the business was was quite traditional, um, publicly traded company um, reported to the street separately for their direct business, as they called it, versus their um, brick and mortar business. Um, and a lot of conversations and issues to deal with around how to give credit to an online sale, mm. how things are cannibalizing one another, um, what the experience was in the store, if you were to bring up. Uh, an item on your phone that was online. We didn't have price parity. So oftentimes you would find it cheaper online while you're sitting in the store, but then the retail associate wouldn't want to match it, right? Um, or, or wouldn't recommend a product available online if it wasn't in stock in the store because they wouldn't get credit for the transaction. So all kinds of weird stuff like that that I think was really interesting to navigate at a time when while Omnichannel was, was, was certainly around, it was not like the table stakes as it is today. Um, you know, this is 2013, 2014 um, time period. So, um, you know, about seven years ago, uh, Omnichannel is certainly not what, what people are, are accustomed to. And we were just starting to figure out a lot of those challenges, you know, buy online, pick up in store, buy in store, ship to the house, um, or all things that we actually just started to implement um, while I was there. Um, which was just super interesting to see happen um, while you're really in the weeds. Yeah, it's it's funny as you cycle through all those things. You know, I've I've worked in a number of uh, companies like that where they were still very siloed. All the things that couldn't happen, not because they weren't the right thing to do, but because they couldn't figure out where who gets the the value of the sale. And and so rather than dealing with uh, that, uh, they just you know we we just in some cases didn't even bother. Um, and that, you know, that ultimately hurt the business. So I'm uh, glad to see that, that we weren't the only uh, folks that were struggling that way. And, and so did that galvanize your thinking that, you know, you needed to do something else because, you know, you couldn't get folks to realize that, you know, being siloed wasn't the right way to go? Or did you think you really had an opportunity to make change? 
Yeah, so, I mean, I loved my time at Vitamin Shop because I had amazing um, people above me who were just awesome in terms of mentorship and coaching and helping me learn what it's like to lead teams. Um, so uh, the person that was running e-commerce there and, and the CMO both um, became good friends of mine that I still am very close to today. And uh, I think we're, we're just really, really important for me in, in becoming the, the kind of manager that and having those skills that I have today, not that I'm necessarily the best manager in the world at all. Um, I think I still have a ton to learn in that front, but, but I think, you know, in terms of, of just forming um, my, my capability and skill set, that was a really, really important part of my career path. Um, and I think working with a company like that, that maybe was a little bit more traditional, was actually a good balance for me, um, given my style and, and my desire to move quickly um, and, and let things break. So I think it was a, a really good balance for me. Good. And it, it seems like uh, during that time, you maybe had a, a side hustle uh, with uh, Tasty Tab. Is that true? I, it actually was was not necessarily a side hustle and more so. That was actually the reason why I left Vitamin Shop. Um, I wanted to start this company called Tasty Tab. I, I was um, just in the process of getting it ramped up um, while I was transitioning out from Vitamin Shop. I gave them a, a really long um, lead time on on leaving so that they could spin up um, somebody new and, and at the same time I was you know, still tinkering with this startup um, that we were building out and Tasty Tab the real was going to be the full time gig once I left Vitamin Shop um, with the goal of uh, allowing anyone from a mom and pop restaurant to a small chain to a large chain to um, have tablets on their tables to improve. Um, the average ticket at the table and also speed up the table turnover um, by having a tablet there to order impulse items like drinks or appetizers or desserts, but also to check out as you wish. So that was the goal there and, and spent a lot of time actually building out the prototype on software and figuring out the hardware components. And uh, and as we, you know, we were doing that, uh, we just started to get people asking for help running marketing for their brands. And that, that actually is what started out as the side hustle, right, was was what was then called Agency Within, which we're now called Within. Um, in the beginning was just doing some consulting on the side to pay the bills so that we can go in and try to start up Tasty Tab. In reality, that's what became the business, and it grew so quickly that um, we abandoned Tasty Tab and went full-time into uh, Agency Within, as it was known at the time, um, because it was growing so quickly and so many brands needed help that it just ate up all of our time, and, and we chased the dollars and the growth. And, uh, and then it's all been about maximizing that growth of within ever since. Cool. And so you created agency within, uh, as you just described, uh, you build yourselves as the first performance branding agency. What does that mean? Yeah. So performance branding is a concept that, that really we want to coin as where the industry is going. And the simplest way I like to explain it is all we're doing is taking the business objective, which for pretty much every for-profit company, their objective is to return to their shareholders right, or their investors. And how do they do that? They do that, again, almost every single time the same way, which is by optimizing everything in their business to long-term profitability. And for whatever reason, that never makes its way into the marketing program. And the marketing program is always built on some kind of other KPI that is not aligned perfectly with the business objective. Um, and oftentimes you'll see that show up as revenue or how many new customers you acquire or um, you know, some other kind of flavor of that. But why would you optimize your marketing program to revenue or to the cost to acquire a new customer 
when neither of those things are perfectly aligned with driving long-term profit, if in the end of the day, driving long-term profit is actually what, what you care about. Um, so at the highest level, performance branding is really just the tool we use to bring the business objective of long-term profitability into the marketing program. And the way that performance branding works is that it's built on five pillars that all unite into this idea of breaking down silos. And we're breaking down silos between brand marketing and performance marketing because we believe that every consumer touch point should really involve both building emotional connections, which is typically known as the brand side, and also driving people down the path to conversion, which is typically known as the performance marketing side. But if you wanna do your job really well and you wanna build your brand long-term uh, and you wanna drive profitability along the way, then you really need to be doing both of those things in every consumer touch point. Because every time that you're only doing one, either brand or performance and not both, you're leaving money on the table and you're giving the consumer a bad user experience by having a disjointed effort across marketing touch points or channels or time periods. So that's kind of you know, the, the high level of, of what performance branding is and how we use it and, and why and what it means. Um, but performance branding for us is, is really where the marketing programs of every brand are going and, and where the future lies for, for anyone who wants to succeed in a marketplace that is just constantly evolving and has so many ways to reach consumers. You rebranded the agency from uh, the name Agency Within to Simply Within. What was the impetus for that? Yeah, so there's a few things that we wanted to accomplish with the rebrand. Um, one was forever since we started the company, very first day, we always thought of ourselves more like an in-house team because of our view as being a partner than an agency or a vendor. Um, we called ourselves Agency Within with the, with the, the kind of slogan, your in-house agency which I think spoke really well to startups who understood that at the time. But I think having the word agency in our name was just so counterproductive to the fact that we never thought of ourselves an agency, yet that word is in our name. While it sounds so simple, dropping the word agency, I think just allowed us to align with who we are and who we want people to know us by, which is not an agency, but more so as a partner. I think the other piece of it is that we grew as a business over time um, in a few ways, but in two particular ways, um, grew in the way of the type of clients we, we work with, bigger and bigger brands, um, more omni-channel brands, um, brands that were, had a global footprint. And we also um, grew in terms of, of our content offering um, being just as strong as our media offering. And the rebrand was also a big effort in bringing that to light to the market so that people see us for who we are today and not necessarily just who we were when we started the company five years ago. Um, we're now we're working with brands like Nike um, and Shake Shack and Spanx and Forever 21 and, and, and the like. And we're, we're working across media and content seamlessly and holistically, um, which were both really important to come through uh, in a way that was very clear with the rebrand. So as you think about, you know, new clients that, uh, you know, come into the fold, and I'm sure that it's different for each of the clients, especially because you have such a diverse client base. Give me an example of um, some problems that a client may come to you or a potential client would come to you with and say, look, these are the problems that we have. How can you help us? What do you generally see if there is a generalization? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a few um, flavors of that. Um, 
a very common one is we're not growing as fast as we need to or we'd like to or as our competitors are. So some kind of mismatch between growth expectation and growth actuals. Another one oftentimes is that people know that they're relying on things that are not helping them like last click attribution or revenue based KPIs. And they know that we're the ones who can help them walk away from last click and embrace full funnel attribution or incrementally incrementality based attribution or we're the ones that can help them shift from a revenue based KPI to a long term profitability based KPI. You know, and I think that the complexity of the ecosystem, which is constantly increasing, is allowing people to sometimes kind of realize that, hey, this is not necessarily the same game that you played five years ago. And if your team or your partners haven't changed to keep up with the changes in the industry, um, then, then you might need a new partner. Um, so I think, you know, whether it's complexity or a desire to walk to improve attribution or a desire to move towards lifetime value-based optimization, those are, are very common you know, issues. Um, but I think one that we're seeing more and more now, which goes back to performance branding, is that now I think brands are have have been so swept up in this silo-based approach that they're waking up realizing that not only do they have things siloed between brand and performance, but they then have things siloed beneath that by channel, which is removing their ability to move money in real time uh, or leverage learnings between these channels. Uh, and they're looking for a more holistic solution that will speak to their customers more holistically, but will also generate a better ROI. Um, and all of those things align back to performance branding. And, and so it, what's the, you know, we talk about the secret sauce, right? So you, you, a client comes to you and they explain the problem as, as you just described. What is it about your organization that you think allows you to be able to help them in the way that they need to be helped? Is it about the brain cells that, you know, are within your team? Is it the philosophical, you know, thinking that you have? Are there real tools, analytical tools that you use that are proprietary, that are different than what, you know, other agencies might be helping their clients with? Yeah. So I think oftentimes when, when someone asks a question like that, um, you'll hear an answer that, that sounds very, very similar, which is, which is almost always going to include, you know, people, process, and technology, right? And yep. I think, uh, it's, it's a very common slogan that people are using right now, and I think it, it's accurate. I think in our case, the way that that applies is that it's not just the people themselves, but it's also how we organize those people. And we, from the very beginning, because we were built like an in-house team, and that's all we know. We don't have an agency background. I've never worked at an agency in my life, and we, we all come from the client side, is we built our teams out to be akin to an in-house team. Um, and it sounds so simple, but what that really means is our people are aligned to the business, which is our client, um, not the marketing channel. Every one of our competitors, for the most part, as far as I know at least, uh, aligns to the channel, which means that in order to get everything back aligned to the business, there's someone who's trying to stitch these things together across the channel teams at the agency or even internally. Oftentimes the internal teams are structured the same way by channel. So there's no one really in a powerful quarterback position who understands how all these channels work together, how they influence each other, and how to therefore move the money or leverage those learnings between them in real time. Uh, our people are trained to be cross-functional so that they can operate across channels, at least within what we call our real-time channels, which is anything programmatic and auction-based. So Google, Facebook, or anything in search and social 
uh, as well as DSPs um, and anything that you can buy programmatically from audio to display and video is all what we call real-time channels that are managed out of the same team that aligns back to that business. And I think that's one of the, the largest differentiators for us and something that we would never be able to do if we tried to do that after having built the company. Um, but because we did it from day one, allows us to think and operate like a business owner um, and really sit at the table with them with aligned incentives uh, in a way that we can operate nimbly and do what's best for the business at any given point in time. You know, I could speak more about the technology that we built in-house um, and, and technology that we use that's third party that we license as well and all of those fit together. But I think our people, uh, our culture and the way that, that our people are organized for our clients are, are really, really big differentiators for us. Yeah, and I and I've seen you speak a few times, and I, I remember the first time um, that I heard you, you know, give a presentation about, you know, how you should be thinking about your performance. You you definitely had a different slant on it, um, which I found intriguing. Um, you know, being able to look at lifetime value and cost of acquisition, and uh, something that certainly caught my eye, and and said, you know, I need to be watching what what you guys are doing. So you know, that's great. You you mentioned you know attribution. Uh, which is you can't have a conversation like this without talking about attribution uh, and the measurement of incrementality, especially when you know retailers are playing in so many different um, spaces. So as you you think about that, you know it's it's one thing to be able to attribute the sale to a particular channel, but I think you touched on this before. It really is a function, though, whether you can be successful if you can move the dollars around real time. So can you dig into that a little bit about, you know, if I'm a retailer, how you're helping me not only measure where you think the order is coming from, but then how to adjust my spend? Yeah, so we base everything on incrementality. And our view is you're not able to actually stitch together every touch point and tie it back to a conversion event, right? That's just not technically possible right now because of the walled gardens of major channels like Google or Facebook. Uh, and in reality, all you need is one issue with a walled garden that has enough material scale within your marketing mix that will screw up the rest. Meaning if you could do everything perfectly, but Facebook's a black box and Facebook takes 40% of your budget, everything you're looking at is inaccurate from a multi-touch perspective, right? Because it's a domino effect and once you're wrong with one, everything else becomes biased and wrong. So. We've seen countless companies uh, in terms of clients of ours, past and present, um, hire brands, or hire, sorry, uh, companies to do attribution for them and result in a place where they say, well, we know this is wrong because of this walled garden or that cross device tracking issue or this view through tracking bl blind spot. Uh, and then they end up doing manual manipulation on top of it to just tell them what they want it to say. To which point, what's the point of the solution in the first place, right? We take a very different approach. We say, hey, look, we cannot do that, right? We, we, like everyone else, are not actually capable or able to stitch together every touch point to a conversion and do proper fractional attribution across every touch point that was there until the transaction. But what we can do, and what we can do very, very accurately, is understand the exact incrementality of every marketing campaign and channel or audience combination. And in reality, why does anyone care about attribution, right? People don't care about attribution because they're fascinated with the fractional you know, touch points in their credit. People are interested in attribution because they just wanna know where to move their money, right? All they're trying to do with attribution in terms of how to use it as a tool is simply 
get the best return on your investment. That is why we care about attribution. So our approach, which is rooted in incrementality and incrementality testing, allows us to get to that result. We will know exactly what the incrementality is of every dollar we spend. We will know exactly how that incrementality compares across every other dollar we're spending. And therefore, we can properly allocate it to get the best possible return on investment. All the while, we will never know all the touch points tied to one transaction because it just doesn't matter and we can't tell it anyway, but we can still get the result we want, which is the best possible ROI, which is why I think we're able to do so much better for our clients than our competitors because we have a solution that allows us to maximize the return based on incrementality, um, which others are not doing right now. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Talk a bit about the, you know, we talk about platforms and you have a, a content side and, you know, content side working together with performance marketing side. There's so many different places, you know, for um, retailers, brands to spend their money. Um, and you see more and more of these, you know, evolving over time. And, you know, we talk about TikTok and Snap and Facebook and Pinterest. Where are the, the places at the moment where, um, you feel most confident that you're able to measure that people are brands are getting incremental revenue from their spend. Yeah. So look, I mean, I think Google and Facebook clearly are the gorillas, right? If you're not able to make Google or Facebook work for you as a marketing channel, then I would say you might want to revisit your business model, right? Like it would be really odd that a consumer company can't make Google or Facebook work, but yet is still incredibly successful, right? I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's incredibly rare unless you're selling like food and beverage, which just isn't bought direct to consumer so often, right? So yeah, if you're a food and beverage, you know, or something similar, it's super low average selling price on the item level. Maybe you just need to sell through a marketplace like Amazon or grocery or, or big box retail. But assuming you're not, you know, one of those um, and you really are relying on direct consumer to grow your business, at least to a large degree, um, then you need to make either Google or Facebook work for you at a minimum. Not that you can't layer on other channels, but again, if, if neither of those work for you, that's an indication that there's a larger problem with your business or your product market fit. So that's kind of the starting point. You know, I, I would say as we see brands grow on Google or Facebook or both, as they scale the budget in those channels, more and more it makes sense for them to diversify because at some point that next incremental dollar you spend on Google or Facebook would actually be better spent as a first dollar spent on a new platform like Pinterest, for example, or YouTube or podcasting or influencer marketing or what have you. You know, Google and Facebook, while they might be the, the kind of first stepping stones uh, along with retargeting on display, um, you know, very quickly we want to see our clients expand into Pinterest, which is growing really quickly and performing really well for our clients. Um, YouTube and Snapchat would be others. But OTT and linear TV, out of home, shared mail, I mean, these are all great channels that you need to test and ensure that they work for you with, with the economics. And the holy grail here is that we want to make sure that the last and least efficient dollar we spend on every single channel is equal. 
because the second that you're willing to tolerate a worse return on investment in one place versus somewhere else, you start to have a budget allocation problem where you would have a better investment strategy if you move that money over. Um, and that's kind of the way we think about everything is that it's all about pushing out to your efficient frontier. And we want to be on that efficient frontier curve, um, making sure that we're not spending at a poor marginal return on one place relative to any other place. Okay, thanks. Uh, one thing uh, everybody knows, we've got uh, you know lots of people working from home and all kinds of background noise going on. So uh, we got some dogs, maybe some kids uh, in there. Uh, I have two dogs well. and two kids, so if you need background noise. <laughs> there you go. And, you know, just finishing your comment about uh, the efficient frontier, do, do you find that, you know, your your clients have a, a good understanding of what they can tolerate as a cost of acquisition? I mean, you know, you only can know how much you can afford to spend to acquire a customer if you have some sense of the near or lifetime value of that customer by channel. So are, are you able to help them get their arms around that uh, information as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so LTV analysis is a major part of what we do. Uh, something we do for all of our clients um, that, that have repeat business and we analyze it across many different dimensions. Um, we analyze lifetime value by segmenting customers based on where they were acquired. We segment them based on their age or their gender or their household income. Um, we can also segment them based on what products they buy in their first order or, or what device they place their first order on, for example. Uh, and it's really important to segment your customers when you're doing LTV analysis because you might find that different cohorts have very different lifetime values. Um, and by blending them all together, you're actually doing yourself a disservice. Uh, it's also risky because if your customer makes changes over time, you could end up being out over your skis or, or underinvested, depending on, on what that mix change looks like. So for our customers, we, we like to boil it down into the variables that show the largest variance in lifetime value from one cohort to the other, where each individual cohort still has a material amount of customers in it. Meaning if you tell me that people over 65 with a household income over a million who live in Georgia have the highest lifetime value, but you only have 20 customers that look like that and your overall customer base is a million people, like who cares, right? It, well, it's nice, like that's not scalable. Um, so we wanna look at, for these major buckets of customers. As an example might be women over 35 versus women under 35 versus men over 35 versus men under 35, right? So I mean, it could be that simple where you have four groups of customers that each have a material amount of people in it that each have a high variance of LTV from one bucket to the other. The ones that we typically see showing the highest variance are some of the ones I just mentioned, right? Age, gender, household income, product purchase or category product purchase, channel that they were acquired on, um, just as examples. But you don't want to segment by all of those at once because you'll end up with way too many buckets. So you got to pick the ones that are most important for your business. And then from there, to your point, we now know what the customers are worth to us. And then we can determine how much we're willing to pay to acquire them. Um, you can even be willing to acquire them all at break even. Um, you can discount the future cash flow based on some kind of internal cost of capital. So there's a lot of ways that you can make this conservative if you want to. But as long as you're using the underlying data historically to make those predictions, um, you should be on the right track. Coming down the road, Google has already announced that they're going to be phasing out uh, third-party cookies. Does that give you uh, stress? Uh, how should uh, retailers be thinking about that? Brands be thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, I would say for us in our business, volatility is good and change is good. So um, no, it doesn't stress us out. If anything, we welcome change because I think you know we're really well positioned to adapt. It's one of our three, what we consider to be kind of like 
defining strengths of our business, um, one of which is, is being fast and adaptable. Um, so we see change as something that lends itself well to our business in particular, especially relative to our competitive set because of how fast we're able to adapt. Um, I would say for the industry as a whole, um, it does present challenges. And if you look at what's happening with CCPA, for example, the reporting on the performance of media running in California now shows performance looking terrible. Now, that doesn't mean your actual performance became terrible overnight. It's not like all of a sudden the dollar you invested in Facebook in California returned a dollar where it used to return $10. It's more so that the reporting is impacted because Facebook, for example, can no longer stitch the conversion event back to the original ad that was served to that person. That does create challenges for, for retailers because all of a sudden you lose sight of what's happening in California that you had insight into yesterday. Uh, and to make matters worse, brands that have very big coastal presence, right, have a much higher percentage of revenue tied back to California, which makes it even more devastating to those businesses. It, it will require businesses to adapt and shift the way that they approach their marketing. And in that way, it can become challenging. Um, but for our business in particular at Within, uh, it's actually something that, that helps us propel growth because well, we can help brands navigate those waters when they're not able to on their own. Okay, great information. Uh, I think you gave a lot of uh, good points for our listeners to uh, to think about. So thanks for that. Uh, we get down to the uh, end of our show, and I do a, a two minute drill. Uh, I have seven questions. Uh, get your you know quick uh, answer from. No need to elaborate. Just kind of the first things that come into your mind. Okay, can I start? Go for it. All right, a brand that you admire or that inspires you. Nike. Favorite app on your phone? Ooh, Uber. Okay. Uh, the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Walmart because of COVID and Amazon is delayed so far on shipment. But otherwise, I would probably have to answer back with Amazon again because it's the only <laughs> app I shopped for prior to COVID pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. Any sort of sport that requires any sort of athleticism. <laughs> okay. You were busy creating companies. You weren't outside uh, hitting a baseball, huh? I'll use that excuse, but I don't know if it's just that. <laughs> <laughs> a charitable organization that you're passionate about. Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, we've been talking to a few recently um, that we've been doing some work with that I think are really interesting. I think one in particular that I just think the mission is, and the way they're approaching it is so fascinating is Peace Direct. And it's because they're going after really big problems in areas that might not get as much press as, as others. Uh, and they're solving it through their local communities and local organizations. And they're not trying to parachute in and just be the solution, which is not long-term and not sustainable. Um, so I think what they're doing is amazing. That's great. That's a good one. I haven't heard about them. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Um, read people's minds. And other than your family, what's your most prized possession? That was, thank you for the caveats. If I didn't say my family, then you'd, then you'd get me in a lot of trouble. So you, you <laughs> got me off the hook. No, so, so yes, my, 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 my wife and two kids are amazing. Um, our dogs are like family. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave those with family. Uh, I would say my most prized possession. I mean, I love our 
business that we're in. So I think it's my other baby that if I if I could add one member to the family, it would be that. Um, it is it is something that I'm so passionate about. It's not like a job for me. I love what I do and uh, I think about it all the time because it's not work for me. It is my passion. It's my hobby and I don't really have um, many others. So um, I'd, I'd have to just say my business, although that might not okay. be you're looking for. No, that's uh, that's great. Hey, uh, Joe, look, this was really interesting. I I, I think that uh, you know the work that you guys are doing at uh, Within is uh, incredible. Uh, again, you know, I think the approach, the way you're helping your clients, is is really well done. Um, and this is uh, you know helping people navigate some very complicated things um, is is really important. So thanks for uh, sharing your information with us. Thanks for spending the time with me. Uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you uh, as the months progress. Same here. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And if anyone's listening um, that is looking for a job, we are hiring for some roles right now. So feel free to reach out to, to us um, or shoot me a note at joe at within.co. Uh, or just give us a visit if you need some help with anything that that we can assist with. Um, but otherwise, uh, Mark, as always, uh, appreciate the time chatting, and um, we'll be in touch again soon. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Joe Yakwell for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, as we've heard before on the show, failure is not a dirty word. So many of our guests have had at least one significant failure in their career before they found their success. If you're not having some failures, then perhaps you're taking things too cautiously. If you're in management, give your team some room to grow by trying new ideas and demonstrating to them that failing is just another form of learning. If you're standing still, you're actually falling behind. Number two, we saw that during the beginning of the COVID crisis that many brands rolled out new features for their store businesses, curbside pickup being one of them. Most retailers had never offered that, but they knew that it was something they had to have right away. Many chose what I'll call the 90% solution. Rather than waiting, as they often do, to roll out something that's perfect and having that philosophy cause extensive delays, they went with something that was serviceable and got them in the game almost immediately. Sometimes not being perfect is simply good enough. And number three, cost of acquisition and LTV are two metrics that go hand in hand. Without a clear understanding of your lifetime value of a new customer, you have no way of determining how much you can afford to spend to acquire a new customer. It's incredible how many brands still do not have a firm grip on these metrics. If you cannot solve for this yourselves, there are many providers out there who will be happy to be of help. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.